Okay. So Genesis 8, starting in verse 1, reading through verse 19. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, The waters were dried up from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Okay. So just a reminder from last time, we looked at chapter 7, the whole chapter. And in that chapter, of course, everything that God had foretold in chapter 6 about the flood about the building of the ark, about judgment coming, about the animals that he would preserve on the ark, came to pass. Uh, We see, of course, several things in chapter 7. We see uh, Noah's obedience as he did everything that the Lord had commanded him. We see that in chapter 7, verse 5. It repeats a a thought that we saw in chapter 6, verse 22. Noah did all that that God, the Lord, had commanded him. We see the cataclysm of the flood as not only were the rains, the heavens opened and the rains fell down, but it says the fountains of the earth were opened and, and uh, what we're seeing here is a, is a cataclysmic event, a, a seismic cataclysm of, of epic proportions and, and the entire geology of the earth uh, is in a sense reshaped and reformed as not only is water coming down from above, but water is coming up from below, and, and you've got this enormous cataclysm going. But through it all, we see the preservation of Noah and his family, uh, his wife, his sons, and his sons' wives, and all the animals that God called to the ark. They are preserved in the ark. We saw that God shut Noah into the ark. 
meaning that it was God's protection all the way through. From beginning to end, God is preserving Noah through this judgment. So that's what we saw last time. Uh, the flood is coming, and it says in chapter 7, verse 24, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. So obviously that much time and that much water means it's not just the rain for 40 days, okay? If it rained for 40 days nonstop, you would not have water that uh, covered the tops of the mountains by, what is it, 15 cubits deep or 22 and a half feet deep. You have to have an enormous cataclysm. You have to have, uh, a, a, well, a day of the Lord event, okay? A judgment of epic proportions, as I said. So even after the 40 days and nights of rain, it says that the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. So now Jewish reckoning, a month is 30 days. Uh, so you have five months, five months of water. So Noah's bouncing around on the, in, the, in this massive ark for five months after the, I'm assuming the 40 days are incorporated in the 150. It doesn't say, we're not sure. But you have all of this. Now as we come into chapter 8, we're going to see kind of three things. I've, I've enumerated them is in R's. Okay, you're going to see remembrance. You're going to see relenting. And you're going to see renewal. So you're going to see in the first part, God remembers Noah. You're going to see relenting in the sense that the waters subside and, and uh, are allowed to abate and the earth appears. And then you're going to see, in a sense, renewal as Noah comes out of the ark and the animals come out of the ark and now they are on, a, in a sense, a recreated earth, right? Uh, and they get to repopulate the earth. They are the only... Um, at least land living, you know, <laughs> land dwelling creatures that are alive. Uh, presumably, of course, the sea creatures would have survived the flood since it's water. Uh, but the uh, creatures that <coughs> fly and the creatures that walk on the earth and the human beings, they are preserved through all of this and they come into a, in a sense, a new earth, if you will. So that's what we're going to see tonight. And the theme for tonight is in the midst of. Of a day of the Lord judgment, God remembers Noah and saves him through it. In the midst of a day of the Lord judgment, God remembers Noah and sees him through it. So first, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5, as God remembers Noah. But God remembered Noah. So chapter begins with my two favorite words, right? But God. And as I said, you know, it seems like whenever you see those words together, but God, it's usually going to follow with something good. In this case, God remembers Noah. Now, of course, when last we saw Noah, he was on the ark with his family, with all these animals and, and that the Lord brought to be saved. And of course, the last words that we see are that he, the waters prevail on the earth for 150 days. But thankfully, that's not where the story ends. God doesn't just say, okay, well, there you go. You're on your boat now. I hope you do well and you know, so on. No, he, he remembers. The story doesn't end there. We get these words to open up Genesis 8. But God remembered Noah. That word for remember, zakar. If that means anything to you. It is kind of to remember, to recall, to, to bring to mind. Now, we read this, right? We have to be careful. 
Because, you know, skeptics will come in and they'll read this and say, well, did God forget? Okay, does God forget? Okay, you can speak up. Does God forget? No, okay. So remembering has to mean more like, oh, wow, you know, I forgot all about Noah. You know, I mean, he was on the other side of the globe and I wasn't watching and I couldn't see him from there. No, uh, it's not that he forgot. This is, again, remember, the Bible speaks to man in a fancy word here. I'm going to use a fancy word here. Anthropomorphic language. You're like, well, what does that mean? It speaks in a way that we can understand. Okay? It speaks in a way that human beings can understand. This is God's revelation to us, right? This is God-inspired scripture, yet it's God speaking to us through human agents. You know, the Holy Spirit inspires men to write these, these scriptures. But it's in a way that we can understand it. And in Hebrew, particularly in Hebrew, Hebrew uses a lot of, of imagery, a lot of vivid imagery in their language. So, you know, you often hear, in order to describe the Lord's power, they, he, they talk about the Lord's right arm, okay? And you're like, well, God doesn't have an arm. God doesn't have a hand, okay? But when you hear that phrase, his strong right arm, it, it speaks of his power. When you hear, you know, when you, you talk about the foot, you know, Adam heard the Lord walking in the cool. Well, the Lord's not walking physically, all right? It, it, this is a Hebrew way of explaining things. And when we see here God remembering, it's a way to speak to us to communicate the idea that God has, is remembering the covenant that he made with Noah. God didn't forget, only to remember him later. It's communicating the idea that even though God is judging the world for its sin, God remembers Noah, that he was righteous, that he found favor with him. Remember, that's how, we, that's how he's introduced in the Bible. When we see Noah at the, in, in chapter 6, verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in all his generation. Noah walked with God. Those, those are the same words that are used of Enoch, who walked with God. It speaks of, this was a guy who had a very close, vital, personal relationship with the Lord. So the Lord remembers him. And it's always in the context of covenant. It is always in the context of covenant. Remember, again, uh, this would have been two sessions ago, so about a month ago. We read in chapter 6, verse um, 18. Chapter 6, verse 18. After God commands Noah to build an ark, he says in verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you. Now, we don't get the details of the covenant until later. In fact, we'll see that next time in chapter 8, verse 20 and following. But God promises to covenant with him. A covenant, of course, is, is, a, is an agreement between two parties, a solemn agreement between two parties. So here, God is covenanting with Noah. Now, again, like I said, we don't know the terms of the covenant yet, but we know that God is going to take a special interest in Noah. For several reasons. One, because he covenants with him. But two, because Noah comes out of that godly line from Seth, right? From Adam to Seth to Noah. So he is in that godly line. So God remembers. And again, as I said, it's, it's in the context of covenant. Now I'm going to turn to some Old Testament passages to 
kind of bring this idea of remembering out. In Genesis 19, verse 29. This is just peeking ahead. Um, well, peeking ahead a few centuries. <laughs> looking, looking through our, our little uh, time machine here. Instead of a DeLorean, I guess we're making a time machine out of a church. But as we... Okay, that was a Back to the Future reference in case you didn't get that one. <laughs> time machine out of a DeLorean. Um, this is in the days of Abraham. Okay? And if you remember the story there in, Abraham, uh, in Genesis 18, God uh, comes down. He comes in a, in a human form. All right? So he comes, it's like a theophany. So God appears and he's got two angel messengers with him. And he comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Now Abraham's thinking, well, hey, my nephew Lot lives there. So he begins to uh, bargain with God. And God says, you know, he starts at 50, works his way down. And when he gets to 10, Abraham says, okay, I'm going to stop here because I've kind of been pushing the Lord here for a little bit. Uh, But in chapter 19... Yeah, I mean, the point of that is that there's not ten righteous people in, in Sodom. Okay, But in chapter 19, starting in verse 29, I'm just going to read ahead. I'm going to start a little higher up. I'm going to just start in verse 23. So the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. So, so Sodom has already been, in a sense, destroyed, and, and, and Lot has been, or is about to be destroyed, but Lot has escaped already. Then the Lord rained, uh, rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and the, all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And the Lord looked down towards, uh, sorry, and he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Verse 29, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So here we get a, an instance of God remembering. What did he remember? The covenant that he made with Abraham and the promise that he would preserve Lot. So God remembers the covenant he made with Abraham. Turn ahead now. Let's look a few few more years in the future. Hop back in our time machine and turn to Genesis 30. Starting in verse 22. Now in this case, this is Jacob. We're, We're now in the days of Jacob. And we're in the days where Jacob is already back in um, Mesopotamia, where his family originally came from, to get a wife. Of course, when you know, you know the story of Jacob, right? He goes to find a wife and comes home with two. Uh, not really his fault, right? We see lots of instances of, of, of polygamy in the Bible, and in this, in this case, it's not really his fault, right? He, he wanted Rachel, and, and his, his uncle tricked him and gave him Leah, and then Anyway, that's beside the point. But he's got the two wives, right? And Rachel, his favorite, right, is barren. Leah is not favored, 
is fruitful. She starts bearing children. And then, um, and then they get to a point where they start competing with their handmaidens, and then their handmaidens start giving children, and then Leah bears a couple more children, and then finally, you see here in chapter 30, verse 22, then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her. So she's crying out, of course, for a child. And God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, which means to add, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. So God remembers Rachel. Why? Well, because, again, Rachel is the one through whom the, you know, Joseph comes and Joseph continues the line going forward. So we see there another Again, this is because God has covenanted with Jacob. Jacob is Abraham's grandson. God remembers. All right, let's flip a few more hundred years in the future to Exodus chapter 4. Or sorry, chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 24. All right, so by this time, Jacob and his family had moved to Egypt because of the famine. Jacob dies and is buried back home. Uh, Joseph dies and he says, you know, when you return back to the land, bring my bones with you. But the family of Jacob stays in Egypt. There are 70 people in Egypt. By the time you flip the page from Genesis 50 to Exodus 1, it's 400 years later, and that little group of 70 turned into a multitude of millions Right, So much so that the Pharaoh is like, these Hebrews are getting a little out of hand here. We need to do something about this. So they begin to subjugate them. They begin to um, run this program, this genocidal program to execute the children so they, um, so they will not uh, continue to produce. They even try to incorporate the Hebrew midwives. And of course the midwives uh, kind of following along the lines of you know, other heroes of the, of the scriptures decide, well, it's better for us to follow God and obey God than to listen to Pharaoh. So the Hebrew midwives concoct some story where they say, well, hey, you know, the Hebrew women, they're just, they're just so good at giving children. It's like they, they have already given birth before we can get there. So that's when Pharaoh decides to slaughter all the children from two years old and younger. Uh, that's when Moses is born and he's carted away. But you see in Exodus 2, verse 24, so they've been there uh, 400 years. They're subjugated. They've been put, you know, they've been uh, enslaved. They've built these great uh, cities for Pharaoh. Uh, Verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned. Again, that's that Hebrew way of speaking. It's very emotional. They groaned. They groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And what happens? God heard the groaning and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Again, this language is anthropomorphic. This language is speaking to us in ways we would understand. God knew all of this. But He's... By using this language, it's giving a very personal kind of uh, note to it. God hears the cries of his people. He remembers the covenant he made. And he begins to 
act in their, on their behalf. A couple more. Let's flip ahead now to Leviticus. This time Leviticus 26. So we've seen Genesis, we've seen Exodus, we've seen, now we're going to see Leviticus. Now again, context. Leviticus takes place, I believe, the span of time that covers from Leviticus chapter 1 to Leviticus chapter 27 is one year. So the people are at the foot of Mount Sinai at the end of Exodus, and they're still there (laughs) at the end of Leviticus. Why? Because, well, Moses has been going up and down and getting the law and bringing it down, and and these are all the, the rituals and the commands and the instructions for how to engage in Israel's um, religious practices. But in uh, Leviticus 26, you get a, a section that's very similar to what you see at the end of Deuteronomy, which is the covenant blessings and curses. If the people obey the law, it goes well for them. If they don't obey the law, well, it doesn't go well for them. So in Leviticus 26, starting in verse 42, this is after all the bad things would happen to them if they break the covenant. Then in verse 42, well, let me see. Um, Let's just start in verse 40. So, you know, everything leading up to there from verse 14 to verse 39 is all, if they, if they don't listen to me, if they break my covenant, I will do this, I will do this. Their land will not, their, their land will not bear fruit. Their women will not bear children. They will, they will lose to their enemies, so on and so forth. But chapter 26, verse 40. But if they confess their iniquity, and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them. In other words, God walks contrary to them because they break his covenant and brought them into the land of their enemies, the exile. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. Then drop down to verse 45. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am their Lord. One more. Indulge me, please. 1 Samuel. So you've got to skip Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. That's not a sentence. It's just the order of the books. Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Not, it's not Joshua's judging Ruth or anything like that. 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now 1 Samuel chapter 1 begins. This is after the period of the Judges. It's the end of the period of the Judges. Samuel himself is the last of the judges, these figures, these leaders that God has raised up uh, during that period from uh, the conquest of the land of Canaan until the time of the kings. They had no king in the land, right? That's what the period of judges is. It was, I call it the Wild West, right? So if you like John Wayne movies, if you like, you know, cowboys and Indians, well, that's kind of what the book of Judges is, except instead of cowboys and Indians, you have Israelites and Philistines, or Israelites and Moabites, or Israelites and Midianites, or Israelites and some other ites, okay? But you've got all these people, you know, what happens is it's a cycle. You see these cycles, it's a downward spiral for Israel, because they have forgotten the Lord their God. They have not kept their covenant. 
And every time they disobey, then God brings their enemies in to oppress them. And then the people are like, oh, we're so sorry. And they cry out to the Lord, and the Lord hears. Then he sends a deliverer, and the deliverer delivers them. And then there's peace in the land for 20 or 40 or 80 years, and then it repeats. And it gets worse, and it gets worse until you get Samson, which is now the fact that Samson's in Hebrews 11, the heroes of the faith, quote-unquote, is amazing considering how faithless Samson was, right? If you know anything about the story of Samson, Samson's kind of a, quite a wretched individual. So that's the period of the judges. They come out of that. Samuel's the last one. He's raised up. But this is the story of, of Elkanah, right? Is that his name? Yeah, Elkanah and Hannah. I don't know if they made, meant to make that rhyme, but Elkanah and Hannah, right? Now, he's, he had, here's another guy with two wives. I'm not sure why. That was never, ever commanded. Uh, but one is Penina, the other one is Hannah. Now, just like with Leah and Rachel, right? Penina had lots of children. Hannah had how many initially? Zero. The Lord had closed her womb. So when they, you know, not every year Elkanah would go to Jerusalem and he would offer sacrifice or wherever. I, I'm, actually, it's not uh, Jerusalem, but wherever the, 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 uh, the tabernacle was. And he would bring sacrifices, and he'd bring his family along. And, and, of course, you know the story, you know, Hannah goes in, and she's praying, and she's praying, and then Eli the priest hears her, and he thinks that she's drunk. And he's like, no, 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 I'm not drunk. I'm just, I'm just lamenting. I'm lamenting because I have no, no children. This is verse 15 of chapter 1. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. And the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. In verse 19, um, They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord, what? Remembered her. He remembered her. So here you have, again, the Lord remembering Hannah. He he hears the cries of his covenant people. And she is remembered by the Lord. The Lord opens up her womb, and she is able to give birth to Samuel, who will be a deliverer of his people. You don't need to turn to these, but I'm just going to throw out a couple of psalms if you want to write these references down. But again, this idea of remembering, this idea of the Lord remembering. And why am I spending so much time on this point? Is because, A, it's because it's important. B, because really the rest of the passage doesn't have as much meat on the bones. It's, just a, it's kind of just a, a, a statement of what's happening to, to, to Noah. But here, this idea of remembering, I think, is very important for us. In Psalm 25, verses 6 and 7, uh, this is a psalm of David. Now, if anyone needed to be remembered by the Lord, it was David, right? David, his life, at least his early years, were spent uh, mostly on the run from Saul, okay? Uh, Saul, who had, you know, uh, David, who had been in the employ of Saul, um, sort of irked the ire of Saul when he ended up becoming more successful than Saul, Right? And it was when the ladies of Israel started singing the little, you know, that top 40 hit, 
right? You know, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. And Saul's like, ah, you know, right? And every time you see Saul and David together, for some reason, Saul's trying to throw a spear at David. I'm not sure why, you know, but he was just jealous. But it, actually what it is is that the Lord had vexed Saul, really, is kind of what's going on here. Saul had proven himself unworthy to be king. So David here, Psalm 25, verses 6 and 7, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. So there David crying out to the Lord to remember him. Or again in Psalm 74, verse 2, there we read, Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have uh, redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. This is a psalm of, this, uh, of Asaph. Asaph would have been uh, a songwriter after the exile, so he's uh, crying out to the Lord, Remember your people, your congregation. Remember Mount Zion, that's where you had your, your temple. That's, where you, that's your home couple more verses, Psalm 105, verse 8. The Lord, he remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac. That God remembers particularly his covenant. And again, 106, Psalm 106, verse 45 for their sake, the sake of his people, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. God remembers, particularly in a covenant context. God remembers. So God remembered Noah. You can go back to Genesis 8. God remembers Noah. And because he remembers Noah, we're told here, in um, verse 1, and God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. Now, here's the interesting thing, right? Because just like in Greek, in Hebrew, the word for wind and the word for spirit, can you guess what I'm about to say? It's the same word, yes. Because what is the spirit? Well, it's, you know, it's a spiration, it's a breathing out, right? So, breath or spirit. In Hebrew, now, in, in Greek, it's pneuma, right? We get pneumatic, we get pneumonia, anything that has to do with breathing or respiration. In Hebrew, it's a, well, it's a kind of a guttural-sounding word. It's ruach, okay? That's the word for wind and spirit. So when it says here that God caused a wind, he caused a ruach to blow over the earth, it's kind of, in a way, reminiscent of what you see in Genesis 1, verse 2. And the Ruach of God, the Spirit of God, was hovering over the face of the waters. So this idea that the wind or the Spirit is kind of, I think it's, I think it's meant to sort of echo Genesis 1-2. So as God causes the wind to blow on the water so that they will recede, just as he, you know, God had his Spirit hovering over the, the primordial earth in the very beginning. And think about the language that is used in Exodus, right? When the, when the Israelites are, are escaping from Egypt and they come up to the Red Sea and, and they stop, right? And they've got the Red Sea in front of them. They've got the Egyptians behind them. 
and they're kind of freaking out a little bit. And Noah's like, don't worry, the salvation of the Lord will come. And what happens? It says the Lord caused a wind to blow. And what happened when the wind blew? The sea parted. Right? All the while, of course, the Shekinah glory, that p- pillar of fire and cloud, is behind them as their rear guard. Which, that's another theme you get in the Psalms, that the Lord is our rear guard. But he causes the wind to blow in the Red Sea, so too cause a, God causes a wind to blow, and these waters begin to subside. And then we see this long process, 150 days, verse 3, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. Now, when it says abated or receded, it doesn't mean that they're all gone. It just means that they're gone enough so that the ark can come to a stop. That's kind of what is happening here. So, and in the 17th month, sorry, the 7th month, there's not 17 months in the year. Am I crazy? What's going on with me? In the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Now, just kind of to recall and refresh your memory, chapter 7, verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month on the 17th day. So from the second month, 17th day, to the first month, sorry, the seventh month of the 17th day, five whole months, okay, Five whole months of water on the earth. That's kind of what we're seeing here. And then the waters begin to recede. And then it's another two and a half months uh, until the mountains are are, are appearing, right? And the waters continue to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So the ark comes to a rest. I'm not going to go into this in great detail, but... You know, we always try to, like, you know, can we find Noah's Ark, right? You always see these things appear on, you know, the History Channel or whatever channel, and it's like, you know, the search for Noah's Ark or whatever. It's like, let's face it. If, <laughs> if you're coming out, right, of the Ark like Noah was, and you're going to start a life, you're going to need supplies, right? More often, it's probably what is the case. The reason why you're probably not going to find the Ark is, Perhaps Noah scavenged a lot of that wood in order, I mean, he built an altar, right? That's what we're going to find out uh, in the next chapter. He built an altar. Well, where did he get the wood for that? I mean, perhaps trees, but they've been underwater for five months. They might be pretty waterlogged still. So he's probably going to take some of the wood out of the ark and use that to build the altar and use that for other things too. So anyway, and it's, it's not Mount Ararat. It says, right, the mountains of Ararat. It's a whole region of mountains there. But anyway, as we bring this first point to a close here, we see that though God brought judgment upon the earth for the continual sin committed by humanity, God here preserves his favored one, the one with whom he had found favor, his righteous one on the ark. God does not forget his covenant. God made a covenant with Noah. God remembered Noah. God preserved Noah through all of this. The problem is, God doesn't forget us, but you know, do we tend to forget God sometimes? Yeah, I think so. That's why in 1 Timothy, he, you know, Paul says, though we are faithless, he is faithful. Um, we may forget God, but God will not forget us. And really, you think about that too. Think about you know, you know, just some practical examples of that. You know, if you think about how you, know, you may have uh, someone who is, you know, um, 
following the Lord you know, closely, and then maybe some tragedy happens in this person's life, and then they kind of turn away. You know, they, may, they forget God. And then God's like, I'm not going to forget you, right? Think about the prodigal son, right? The son leaves, but the father doesn't forget the son, right? And when the son comes back, what does the father do? He runs after his son. So we may forget God, we may be faithless, but God will not forget us. He remembers. Okay, the rest of it should go a little more quickly. So verses 6 through 12, we're going to see the waters reside or subside, so they're relenting. And we see here, uh, the ark comes to a stop on the mountains of Ararat as the water begins to recede. That's what we see in verse 6. At the end of 40 days, uh, Noah opened the window of the ark that he made and sent forth a raven. And it went uh, to and fro until the waters had, uh, were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. And he waited another seven days. And again, he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth a dove, and she did not return to him anymore. So even after all of this time that he's on the ark and, and, and on, you know, in the flood and everything, we see here that Noah waits another 40 days before he even opens up the ark. Okay? You know, in a way, kind of parallel to the 40 days of rain. But at the end of the 40 days, then Noah begins to send out birds. He's like, okay, let's see what's, what's going on here. We know the ark has come to a stop. Let's see if we can actually get off this thing. I mean, for crying out loud, we've been on this thing for, you know, six months now, seven months now. We're actually getting closer to ten months now. So he sends out birds. He sends out a raven and he sends out a dove. Now, I don't know if there's anything you know, significant, spiritually speaking, between a raven and a dove. I know oftentimes a dove is uh, symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And we see the dove with the, oftentimes you'll see the Holy Spirit pictures a dove with an olive branch and so on and so forth. But these are just birds, okay? It's, it's a raven and a dove. Now, a raven is a carrion bird, right? It's a scavenger bird. So even though the waters hadn't subsided, the bird can probably just find, you know, the raven can find food and, and sustain herself just by flying around. That's why it says she goes to and fro, but she never returns, right? The raven never returns. So what that's probably sig signaling to Noah is like, okay, well, at least the raven can survive, so that's fine. I'm going to send out a dove now. A dove is a different type of bird, right, in the sense that, she, you know, she doesn't um, eat carrion. She doesn't eat scavenge, you know, stuff. She feeds on seed and vegetation. So he sends her out and the dove keeps coming back and he does this three times, back and forth, back, each time waiting seven days. And, you know, you can probably draw some significance to the seven days there. Um, he does this three times and he does it until she wouldn't return anymore. Right? The first time, nothing. The second time, the olive branch. The third time, the bird's gone. Right? It's like she's found herself a home. So Noah's like, great. All right, so the, we, know the, we know the raven can survive. We know the dove can survive. And now it's just about time. But just to, you know, maybe draw some more significance out of this, one can almost get a sense here that the amount of time until Noah and his family could come off the ark is in a sense, you know, you think about it, is, 
in a sense, because perhaps it just takes that much time to wash away the filth of our sin, right? You know, we, the whole flood comes because God, you know, the book, you know, the Bible says that the whole earth, right, every person besides Noah, every person was only evil, only continually all, all the time. You've got all the sin, and that's, that's what rises up to God's nostrils, and God finally judges everybody. And now it's like this takes time to wash away, in a sense, the sin of the people. This, this imagery is often used. We see this in respect to Israel and the exile. Israel, you know, God uses, again, the Bible uses this language in the Old Testament that's, again, very uh, emotive, very image, you know, filled with imagery. Um, you don't just say that the people were expelled from the land. No, in the Old Testament, oftentimes it says the land vomits them out. Okay, again, it's, it's yeah, it's gross, but it's it's the idea. It's like these people are so nasty, so filthy. The land's like, bleh, you know, just get rid of them. It's awful, right? That's the whole point of 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 you know when when God sends the Israelites initially to to. Uh, conquer the Canaanites. Their sin was so much that finally God said, time to, sin, to kick them out. Same thing with Israel. When their sin got up to a point, then the land had to be purified. Do you remember back in chapter 4 when Cain kills his brother Abel? What does God say? He, he says that the blood of your brother Abel cries out to me from the ground. Right? The ground, you know, is, it's so, uh, you know, polluted by the sin, that it cries out to God. But uh, when uh, Israel is exiled, we see this kind of similar language of you know, cleansing or purifying the land after their sin. Again, back in Leviticus 26, you can just listen here. But that's, again, that section of, of the judgments in Leviticus 26, verses 34 and 35, once they are expelled because of their sin, it says, then... The land shall enjoy its Sabbaths, its rests, as long as it lies desolate while you are in your enemy's lands. And the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. And as long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest and the, and, uh, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. Now, what is all that talking about? Well, if you remember, you know, they, they talk about how they're allowed to till the land and then every seventh year, they had to not till the land. And then what, you know, typically what would happen is the Lord would provide more crops in that sixth year so they could carry them through. You've got to give the land rest, right? You know, I would imagine that's probably something farmers do, right? You, you may till a piece of land, but then you may rotate the land or something just to give it a bit of a rest. Uh, here he's talking about the, you know, the land. The Israelites did not give the land any rest. So when they were exiled, says the land is now able to have a rest or something. Uh, in Jeremiah 4.23, he talks about how because of Israel's sin and they were exiled, um, it, it talks about the land again there. It's, it uses the same language from Genesis 1. It's uh, formless and, and void. If you remember, the idea of formless and void is it's unpopulated and it's disordered. Well, that's what happened after the conquest came through and they kicked the Israelites, Israelites out. The land became uh, unpopulated and disordered. But this imagery here about the land being washed from the filth of their sin until Noah can come out. Again, the flood was a cataclysmic event uh, in which the earth was uncreated, right? 
It was uncreated and it returned, in a sense, to its primitive states, right? You know, again, Genesis 1, verse 2, waters covered the face of the earth. Same thing here. Once the flood comes, waters covered the whole face of the earth. Gone were all the traces of sin. Gone was all the corruption that brought about the judgment. The only thing left now is Noah, his family, and the animals that are preserved on the ark. And then finally, verses 13 through 19, we see now Noah leave the ark. So this is the renewal. You saw the, you saw the remembrance, you saw the relenting, and now you're going to see the renewal as Noah leaves the ark in verses 13 through 19. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then, Noah, then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. So verse 13 here, of course, gives us another time marker, right? The whole thing began in the 600th year of Noah's life. The waters begin to subside in, you know, the seventh month on the 17th day of the month, and then until the 10th month, and then now you get this in the 601st year, in the first month, so we're almost a year now that Noah has been sitting on this giant boat, okay, this giant box. And what does Noah do? Well, he waits two more months. <laughs> in a way, it's like, I'm not leaving this thing until God tells me to leave this thing. That's kind of what Noah's doing here, right? I mean, Noah, you know, God said, go on the boat. And Noah's like, okay, I'm going on the boat. I'm going to stay here until God tells me, get off the boat. And that's exactly what happens, right? God tells Noah, go from the ark. And Noah's like, finally, okay, I can go now. But we see, again, Noah wait two more months until God tells him it's okay to leave. Now we kind of, you know, I can poke fun at it, but this is, you know, Noah's just being obedient. He's just kind of listening to God, right? He's just trying to follow God in all of this. He tells him to leave the ark with his family and all the animals that he had brought aboard. And he tells Noah, to be fruitful and multiply. The animals will be fruitful and multiply. That's the same command that God gives to Adam when he creates him and creates Eve. Be fruitful and multiply. That part of the mandate, if you will, is given again to Noah. We're going to see this again multiple times in the next uh, passage that we're going to look at. Where Noah, you can see this just peek ahead to chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. I mean, that kind of makes sense, right? <laughs> There's only eight people on the earth. You know, they've they got to be fruitful and they've got to multiply. But it's God blesses them so that they'll do that. This is a new beginning, right? The old earth is gone. The earth that was before the flood, gone. As I said, you're... You're probably even looking at a, you know, geologically, you're probably looking at a different planet now than what was before the flood. 
Uh, if, if we believe that the, the earth was one giant continent before, well, now it's probably been broken up thanks to the fountains of the earth uh, bursting forth. It's probably now been broken up into, you know, very similar to what we see now. Mountains that might not have been very tall are probably much taller now as all this tectonic uh, activity goes forth and mountains are formed. It's a new earth, in a sense, a new beginning for earth and humanity. And in a sense, this is kind of what we'll look forward to with the new heavens and the new earth, right? Just as Noah comes off of the ark and is here on a new sort of reformed earth, that's what it's going to be like for us, right? That's what it's going to be like for us. Just think about when we looked at Revelation, right? In Revelation chapter, at the end of chapter, uh, let's see, is it the end of chapter 19 or is it the beginning of chapter 20? Um, no, it's the end of chapter 20. Okay. I think that's what I want to see. No, it's cha- chapter 21. All right. I, I found my place. If you remember that, this is not too long ago we looked at this. Uh, Genesis chapter 21. John sees a vision. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Well, why does he see a new heaven and a new earth? Well, because the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. And the sea was no more. What happened there? Well, they receded before the Lord when he returns. When he returns, the earth will be renewed, will be recreated. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. So new heaven, new earth, new city coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God, covenant language. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's very similar to what we see here with Noah. The former things have gone. The old world is gone. All that sin is gone. Problem is, it's not the new heavens and the new earth. <laughs> the new heavens and the new earth, there's no more sin, no death, no pain, no suffering. In, no, in Noah's new heaven and new earth, <laughs> there's still going to be pain and death and suffering, unfortunately. But it's what Peter himself, we've looked at this passage a few times in our study, in 2 Peter 3, um, he talks about the flood. Well, he talks about the scoffers when they, they scoff at the day of the Lord coming. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. That's the original creation. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So Peter's talking about the flood. They're, they came out of the water, then God destroyed it. And then brought forth a new earth, if you will. And he says, by the same word, so now in verse 7, by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist, the ones that came forth when Noah came off the ark, they are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And then dropping down to verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, this world, what sort of people ought we to be? Because that world, this world that we live in now is going to be burned up, it's going to be dissolved, and it's going to give way to the new heavens and the new earth. So that's what we see here. Noah comes off the ark into a new world, a new creation in a sense. 
kind of pointing forward to our actual new creation. And if the ark is symbolic of baptism, if you remember we looked at that last time, Peter, Peter makes these interesting comparisons with Noah, but he talks about the ark in a sense being like baptism, how we are saved from the waters of judgment. And that's kind of what baptism is supposed to picture. You are symbolically you know, depending on how you practice baptism, you're the, you know, the water's poured over you or you're dunked in it, but you, symbolically that water is the waters of judgment, but you are brought forth from them. You are delivered from them because Christ is the one who is going to be uh, baptized in judgment by, in your place. So if the ark is symbolic of baptism being saved through judgment, then one can see Noah Leaving the ark is like one coming up out of the waters of baptism into new life. Or like Israel emerging from the Red Sea. Again, they talked about how they were baptized into Moses as they emerged from the Red Sea. So Noah leaves the ark and he comes into this new world. He's been preserved through judgment by God's gracious uh, activity. So as we bring this to a close, this passage along with the other two. So this is, like I said, Noah and the Flood Part 3. Uh, as we come to this, the end of this passage, uh, what this shows us is the certainty of God's judgment, right? But also the certainty of his salvation. Um, we've mentioned this before. Jesus refers to his coming like the days of Noah, right? Uh, people are not going to be expecting it. It's going to come like a thief in the night, and he's going to come. People are going to be eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, and then Judgment is going to come, and it will come. That's the point. Just as it came in the days of Noah, it will come when Christ returns. But just as sure is the fact that God remembers. God remembers his people and preserves them through it. We will not face judgment because judgment has already been paid for, right? Jesus went through and suffered, in a sense, a day of the Lord judgment on the cross for us. But it was sin that precipitated the flood, and it is our sin then that highlights the need of a Savior. Just as Noah needed an ark, we need Jesus, right? We need Christ to save us. We cannot save ourselves just as the people could not save themselves in the days of Noah. But again, God remembered Noah God remembers us. You may be thinking, well, are you sure he's remembering us? It's been 2,000 years since Jesus has been here. Well, yes, he does remember us. Again, I'm not going to turn to it, but 2 Peter talks about how God is not slow to you know, remember his promises. He's not slow regarding his promises. And just as no one in his family stepped out into a new creation, so too we who are in Christ will one day step out with him into the new heavens and the new earth. That's kind of what I see in this passage anyway. So I'm going to stop here next time. Uh, I believe that will be July 2nd. So we're going to be without our accompanist, right? So we're, we can either sing a cappella or we can just skip the songs next time. But July 2nd, we're going to look at, uh, at least my plan, is uh, Genesis 8, verse 20, all the way through 9, verse 17.